2020. That's uh, two zeros and two twos. Alternate the two twos and the two zeros to give us 2020. Add up all the digits and you have four. Numerology, I guess. Hey, this uh, week and this episode kicks off year four of Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee, a podcast slash video blog. Uh, the main thing that I started it for was to kind of make a diary of the business trade show guy exhibits, as well as talk to people in the industry and maybe close to the industry that may not be uh, directly related to trade show marketing, but certainly business and business marketing and, and things like that. Uh, but uh, the business trade show guy exhibits in its ninth year. You can find us at tradeshowguyexhibits.com. You can find uh, the main website, kind of the hub for everything is tradeshowguy.com. Net and uh, other sites we have, tradeshowbuy.com is where you find a great exhibit. Uh, find all of our old webinars archived at tradeshowguywebinars.com. Of course, the two books, Trade Show Guy, I see, trade, <laughs> trying to remember these, uh, tradeshowsuccessbook.com and tradeshowsuperheroes.com. Indeed. All right. The beginning uh, of a year, I think it's time to reflect, which I do. It's been a weird year. The first six months were gangbusters. Uh, as we did a whole lot of projects, added new clients, did work for several current clients. It was crazy. Um, you know, uh, flush with cash, kind of stressful because we had to get all the work done. Uh, the second half of the year, so I was pulled back quite a bit. I spent a lot of time on a personal project. Actually, I've owned this house uh, for 21 years. Not the house uh, that I'm in right now, but a different house that I moved out of about seven or eight years ago. And it became a rental. And then finally became time to sell that. Renters left, and it was time to put it on the market. Took a lot of work, took some investment, uh, you know, new roof and and things like that, and and then it sat on the market for five months without an offer, and we kept kind of slowly dropping the price. The broker kept saying, "Well, it's priced right," and eventually we got an offer, and that's kind of winding its way through. But that was a really different. Uh, part of uh, life that I wasn't planning to do really that part of the year. Uh, so that kind of was interesting and, and also stressful as well. So, you know, with the combination of the cycles of business, the ups and downs and putting a lot of time and money into that house, it's it's been crazy. Uh, stressful, yes, and rewarding, I think. And personally, you know, I finally ran out of excuses to, to do what I've been threatening to do for years, and that is to write a novel. I did the first draft of a novel that I started in October. It still needs a lot of work, and I have no idea if it's something anyone will want to read. Uh, but I like the process. I like the character so much that I had an idea for a second novel using the same character. And two days after I quit the first one or finished the first one and wrapped that up, the first draft, mind you, it's got a lot of work, I started the second story. Uh, and I'm probably a third uh, of the way through that. So this has been really fun. It's been creative. Uh, it's it's exhilarating in a way to do all that creative work uh, that I hadn't really done before in that sense. Back when I was in my probably late 20s, early 30s, I, I, I took a crack at writing a novel. I wrote a lot. I have, you know, somewhere in a file, I've got 100, 150 pages, but it was it was a mess. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and eventually I walked away from it and said, oh, writing a novel's hard. <laughs> And it is. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this book here in just a little bit because that has really helped me as well. Um, my main goals for writing the novel, I think, were uh, create a character that I liked and hoped other people would like. I wanted it to be a bit of a page turner. Uh, I'm not the kind with all uh, the flowery uh, prose. I like to keep the action moving, uh, alternating between describing what's going on, uh, what the hero of the story, uh, story sees and hears and feels, and having her interact with people. So there's a lot of dialogue in there, a lot of action, a lot of unusual things. Uh, brief, <coughs> excuse me. Briefly, the main protagonist is a uh, late twenty-something Korean American 
woman, a musician, and sometimes martial arts practitioner, and she's a bit of a loner. She stumbled onto something that turns her world upside down, and she really has to deal with it, although she doesn't want to. Along the way, she starts to discover that she has, well, not superpowers, shall we say, but somewhat enhanced abilities. So I'm looking forward to see how that plays out. She doesn't know how to deal with them, but has to learn. She's not perfect. She's very indecisive, uh, quiet, a bit of a loner. She harbors a secret from her past that drives her to try to make things right in the world. They say if you're going to have a great character, you got to have the objective. Then you got to have a super objective. What's really driving her? And this, like I said, this book, I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and so on. So more as it moves forward uh, and goes through the process, we'll see what happens this year. Kind of looking forward to seeing how that works out. Along with, of course, keeping Trade Show Guy exhibits going. And, of course, this podcast slash video blog. And uh, this week on the show, I had a chance to chat with author and speaker David Meerman Scott. I've spoken with him before about some of his previous books. Um, gosh, it's been 8, 10, maybe more years ago than that. I think his first book came out in 2007. We talk a little bit about that. But this is his 8th or ninth or 10th book uh, called Fanocracy, co-written with his daughter, Ryko Scott, and made for a really fun and good uh, conversation. I think you'll like this. I want to welcome David Merriman Scott to Trade Show Guy, Monday Morning Coffee. Uh, David, appreciate you being there, author of some great books. And I've got a couple of them, Worldwide Rave, I, I really enjoy. Uh, nice. But the one that started it was kind of new rules of marketing and PR. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you uh, with me to kick off 2020. I love the fact that you have one of the original versions of the new rules of marketing and <laughs> yes. PR, Tim. I appreciate that. That's That was the first edition published in 2007, and I'm in the sixth edition of that book now. I was going to say it goes back at least a dozen years, and now yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, It was it's 2007, so you're right. Yeah. Did that book change your life in a way? Absolutely, because it uh, became an ins a huge bestseller. It sold 400,000 copies in English. Wow. Um, it's in 29 other languages. So it got me out from being um, on trade show floors to being the <laughs> keynote speaker at trade shows. So uh, it's a pretty big, pretty big yeah. difference. Yeah. Thank you. How do you what, what, I'm just curious. What prompt, I don't want to spend too much time on that book because you've got a new one out. But sure. what prompted you to write that book at that time? What did so, you see? Yeah, so um, my first, the, the jobs where I did tons of work on trade shows was I was uh, in charge of marketing for financial information companies. I started my career in a bond trading desk. I was a terrible bond trader. I hated it. But I loved the information side. Um, so I spent 15 years um, in corporate marketing for companies, most recently Thomson Reuters. And when they let me go in 2002, I thought to myself, the idea of marketing is changing. It's really about information and content. And I had had a head start with that because of the information business I was in. So I started writing a blog in 2004, then very quickly started writing the new rules of marketing and PR, which came out in 2007. Very nice. And you have a new one. Uh, is this your, what, 8th, 10th? I don't know. I'm yeah, not keeping something track. like that. Uh, <laughs> but I think this is, the, this is the most interesting because I know you're a Bob Marley fan. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm a Bob Marley fan. I'm also a Grateful Dead fan. Yes, so you are. Go right behind <laughs> me. Um, and so the new book is called Fanocracy turning fans into customers and customers into fans. I started from the perspective of, of just like you being a crazy live music geek and uh, worked with my daughter. She's my co-author. Her name is Reiko. Um, she's obviously a different generation. She's a millennial woman, um, but she's a massive Harry Potter fan. So we mm -hmm. came together 
to analyze and then write about, can companies create the same kind of fandom as you and I love in the music world, as my daughter Reiko loves in the Harry Potter world? And the answer is absolutely 100% yes. (laughs) Um, Every organization can build fans. um, And interestingly, we learned there's some specific takeaways in the trade show business. For example? So... My daughter did a neuroscience degree at um, Columbia, and she's now in her final years, year of medical school. So one thing that we wanted to focus on is what is going on in our brains? What's the neuroscience behind when you become a fan? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we learned from speaking with a number of different neuroscientists is that when you become a fan, you become part of a tribe. You become part of a tribe of like-minded people. So. I'm a, in a part of a tribe of Grateful Dead fans, my daughter of Harry Potter fans. And whenever you meet someone in the same tribe, you have a very strong personal human connection, even if you've never met that person before. Right. That's actually hardwired into our brains going back to cave, caveman days, because what we needed to understand when we met somebody is, are they part of the same tribe? And therefore, we can trust them. And therefore, that's a very positive um, human connection. Or are they a potential enemy? And, um, and that's how our brain works. It's hardwired. And one neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall looked at degrees of proximity further than 20 feet away, approximately is called public space. Inside of 20 feet between 20 feet and four feet is, um, is social space. And inside of four feet is called personal space. So from the trade show perspective, what's really interesting, um, the neuroscience aspect is that when you're in public space, further than 20 feet away, our brains know that people are in public space, but we don't track them. So you're walking the trade show floor, um, or or another way to think about it is you're on the booth and other people are walking the trade show floor. If they're outside of 20 feet, that's outside of public, that's public space. Our brains don't track those people. Inside of 20 feet, you begin to track them because Mm -hmm. our brains need to know, is this person a friend? Is this person a potential enemy? Are they part of the same tribe or not? And um, that's why when you get into a crowded elevator, you feel nervous because they're not part of your tribe. Or, or when, you're go- when I go to a Grateful Dead concert, I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. When I go to a Grateful Dead concert, um, I, I'm part of the tribe. I can talk to anybody. So here's what that means for us when we're on, physically on the booth. What it means is that Once somebody gets inside of about 20 feet, that social space, our brain begins to track those people. Um, If it's very crowded, um, it means our brain's getting tired because we can't help but track all of those people. And the more you can can, uh, make the people who are coming by feel as though they're part of the same tribe as you, the better you are at able to then get them into your personal space that's inside of four feet, that's cocktail party distance, that's where, um, that's where the magic happens. That's exactly. where yeah. the strongest human connections can happen. And so what's interesting to me about this is I probably spent, I don't know, months collectively on trade show floors <laughs> trying to sell stuff. Um, and um, if you come at it with an ad- in an adversarial kind of way, you know, you make people nervous, they'll walk away because their fight or flight instinct kicks in. Again, that's hardwired in our brains. But if you make it more comfortable uh, as if we're all part of the same tribe, we're all here at the same show, we're all part of this industry, that becomes 
way more effective. Um, but there's one more aspect of neuroscience that's really interesting okay. that can be used both before and after you're on the booth. What I mean by that is the weeks leading up to an event and then the weeks after the event. And the neuroscience aspect is called the mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are the part of your brain that fire when you see or hear something as if you're doing it yourself. Let me demonstrate. I've got a lemon in one hand and a slice of lemon in the other hand. Now, if, oops, I dropped my <laughs> slice of lemon. Oh my God, all over my chair. I've got lemon juice all over my chair. So if I take a bite of the lemon, it's really powerful, right? It makes my eyes close, my mouth puckers up. I get all kinds of saliva going on in my mouth and the tartness on my tongue. I mean, biting a lemon is really powerful and my brain is firing like crazy right now. But Tim, your brain is firing too because you just simply saw me bite into that lemon. Or if you're only listening to this and not seeing the video associated with it, your brain is possibly firing as well. That's mirror neurons. Gotcha. Here's what, this, here's what this means for the trade show business. What it means is the more we can use video and even photos before and after the show is actually happening, a couple of weeks before, a couple of weeks after, specifically cropped as we are now, as if we're in the personal space of the camera, um, photographs, videos, looking directly at the camera, what you're doing is people's brains are, are saying uh, subconsciously that I'm actually physically in the space with Tim right now. Uh, Tim and I are on a video right now, but we feel our brains tell us we're in the same room, even though we're not. This is why you feel you know a movie star, even though you've never met them. Exactly. You've seen them on a screen, but you feel like you know them. So if you can use video and even just photographs prior to the trade show, push those videos out. When people see them, they begin to bond with you and de you develop like-minded connections with those people as if you're in the same room as them. Very strong human connections. They'll feel as though you're part of the same tribe. Then when they see you physically on the booth, they will feel like they know you. And same thing afterwards, send those videos and photographs out after the show Again, people's brains fire as if you're actually, they're still actually on that trade show booth. It's interesting you talk about that because I've, I've always maintained that doing uh, a lot of, uh, you shoot a lot of video, take a lot of pictures at trade shows, and there's a lot of uses for them, as you have described, but uh, I didn't think I'd be talking about the neuron part of it. Yeah. Which is really well, interesting. Uh, it, it is. It, it's it, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Really and and, and, it's, and one, one, I've seen a lot of trade show photographs as well my, and, and videos myself, but what people um, don't don't specifically do, and I would encourage everybody listening in to try this, is shoot closer than mm. you normally would, as if you're about four feet from the camera, um, because that's into piece, people's personal space. Uh, most trade show shots I see, like if they're, up, for example, if they're on a trade show booth floor, um, it'll be pretty far away, there'll be multiple people and they won't be looking at the camera. If you can shoot people looking at the camera from closer up, that can be really powerful. Also, it, this also explains the selfie phenomenon because our arm is about four yeah, feet wide. Right, exactly. and, um, and we're shooting that photograph. And also, interestingly, another um, uh, neuroscience aspect is when you're shooting a selfie with somebody else, or if someone is taking the photograph for you and it's in selfie distance about four feet, 
our faces are close together. That's, that signals that we're part of the same tribe if there's multiple people in the photo. If you're looking at the camera, that signals to the person who's seeing that photograph that they're actually in that photograph too. They're, they're actually together with you physically, even though they're not. And all of these things are really powerful. Once you know these ideas, you can then begin to think more carefully about the use of video and the use of photos. You talk about the selfie, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't a thing. Uh, but I think the selfie of this year is what an autograph was 20 years ago. You'd exactly love, you right. wanted to collect autographs. You wanted to get your album signed. Now it's you want to get your picture taken with right. that person. And uh, that, shows, right. that shows the connection that you, you've made. And it's much more personal interestingly enough it know? is it is and it's and it doesn't even have to just be famous people but you right. know uh, on uh, uh, on the, on the trade show floor anywhere uh, and it become, can become really really powerful some of the chapters uh, you 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 have a uh, like a free chapter and a, and a, a list of all the chapters that you have available on the website uh, influencers identity giving letting go of your creations breaking down barriers there's a lot we could talk about there I'm curious there about uh, influencers sure uh, there's obviously some very good upsides to that as well as some downsides what kind of uh, things do you talk about when you talk to people about how influencers can be used in social media. So what we did was we dug into understanding how influencer marketing, so-called influencer marketing works from the perspective of talking to some people who are um, well-known influencers, as well as some companies that have made use of influencers. Um, and also thinking about it from my perspective as somebody who gets um, dozens of emails a day from people who want me to talk about their stuff. Um, and, and, and what it really comes down to is pretty simple, is the more authentically um, that somebody is a user of a product or service, the more effective they are as an influencer. So, you know, any one of us could pay money to somebody, you know, Kim Kardashian or someone like that, pay, pay money to somebody or if B2B company, the right person, you could pay them. Um, and that's not authentic. You're just basically, you know, having a rub off effect in the sense that there's someone who talks about you or puts, sends out a photograph or whatever it is. But if somebody really truly does use your product, they don't even have to necessarily be that be famous. But if they're authentically using your product, those are the most effective influencers. And so um, what, what so many companies don't do is effectively use the people who are already their customers. And this happens to me a lot of times. Like I have 125,000 or more followers on Twitter. So I'm reasonably well known in some of the communities that I operate in. I, like I said earlier, I get um, lots and lots of people who want me to talk about their stuff. But on the, at the same time, I get very, very, very few people who share my stuff um, and so they're looking for these one-way relationships, even when I talk about a product or service that I like. And, and in, in the music world that you and I both love, um, this is a funny phenomenon. Like I'll be watching an, an indie band, you know, maybe they're pretty new, um, and maybe they have 20,000, 30,000 followers on Twitter, and I'll take a photo and I'll tweet it of the, at the show. And I, and I like they won't retweet me or thank me or reply to me or say thanks or hope you enjoyed the show. Nothing like that. Like you guys are idiots. It makes you wonder who I have. I have five, five times more Twitter followers than you and you're not even engaging with me. 
So I think that a more intelligent way to, to work with influencers is find those people who truly love what you do and use them as part of the ways that you get the word out there. And, and one last thing before we uh, you know, kind of wrap up and, and talk about where people can find the book is uh, you talk about telling the truth, especially when it hurts. I think you had some examples. Uh, it's, it seems some companies, a lot of companies, I would say, have a yeah. very difficult time telling the truth because they got a PR guy, they got a lawyer behind that, they got corporate management that just wants to put out this nice, fuzzy, warm right. image, right. but things happen and, and you got to deal with it. Right. It's, it's right. you know, it's, uh, it's critical that uh, the, the, the companies learn how to deal with that and tell the truth. It's absolutely critical because um, that authentic nature of who we are is, is just a very important way for us to show the kind of organization we are and the kind of people who are behind that organization. And especially in the current environment, you know, we're, we're beginning a new decade right now. And, you know, you mentioned the new rules of marketing and PR um, that came out in 2007. And in that short period of, of a little more than a decade, so call it the decade of the teens, I think we've really gone too far in the direction of, of a very polarizing and dark kind of social engagement that so many companies are using. And they play fast and loose with the truth. They cry fake news and, um, and, and, and are really polarizing kinds of ways that people are communicating these days. And I think that the pendulum is beginning to swing back to a kinder and more gentler era where being honest and open and transparent and telling the truth is something that's very powerful, that people will appreciate if you've made a mistake that you own up to it and make it right, as opposed to placing blame somewhere. Um, there's an example in our book that I, I love, and it's, I don't know if you remember this, Tim, but um, it was, I think at the end of last year, um, KFC ran out of chicken in right. the UK. Do you remember that? It was, ridic- it was ridiculous, right? And so it wasn't actually KFC's fault because it was their logistics company that screwed up and there was, wasn't, they didn't get chicken into the restaurants. And what KFC could have done is said, oh, due to a situation beyond our control, there's no chicken in the restaurants. They didn't. They said, we screwed up. Hmm. There's no chicken. They owned it. We screwed up. And And then they made fun of themselves in a humorous way, which worked really well. They said, can you believe that we're a chicken restaurant? We ran out of chicken. How lame is that? <laughs> um, and, and people loved them for it. They loved them for it. Um, there are some companies that know how to take advantage of that, especially the immediacy of, of social media and others that just are stumbling around in the dark and just fascinating to know in. I think you nailed one of, the re- one of the most important reasons. And when you said the lawyers get involved, because um, the legal perspective, sure, it's important in business. You need to get, give it some consideration, but it's not the most important consideration. And if you're hiding behind the lawyers because they tell you that there's some risk involved in doing something, take their advice, but then think about how much more important it might be to tell the truth than it would be to hide behind something because of some potential legal issue. And I would say all things being equal, I'm not a lawyer, but all things being equal, come down on the side of telling the truth. Yeah. 
Agreed. And the book is Fanocracy, uh, David Mirman Scott, and your daughter, Reiko, is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Um, looking forward to reading it. Uh, where's the best place to find it? You also have a website set up specifically. Yeah, for the book. so we've correct? got W, we, yes, exactly. We've got www.fanocracy.com um, where you can learn all sorts of, of cool stuff there. The subtitle to the book sort of says it all. It's turning fans into customers and customers into fans. Um, on the website, fanocracy.com, we've got um, uh, a preview, a free pre preview of the book. There's videos you can check out, um, PDF documents to download. And there's a wonderful diagram, uh, two different diagrams that are freely downloadable, no registration required. One of them talking about this idea of proximity we talked about, um, effective for trade shows. And then the other one being this idea of mirror neurons. Um, so feel free to download those. Will do. David, it's a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. And good luck on the book. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. And thanks again to David Merriman Scott for sharing some time with us here on the Trade Show Guide Monday Morning Coffee podcast slash video blog. I really, really appreciate it. Um, it's, it's out in the hardcover, ebook, or audiobook. Check it out. The website uh, link is on the show notes. This week's trade show tip when you're standing in a trade show booth, it's easy to get swept up by the chaos surrounding you. I mean, there's hundreds of people walking by. There's a lot of neighbors that are competing against you. Then at the end of the day or end of the show, uh, you know, maybe no one's walking by because the place is empty and your neighboring booths are packing up before they're supposed to be. There's so much going on. It's easy to get distracted. I get it. I get distracted all the time. Uh, sometimes it's hard to not be distracted, which means a presence of mind is a really hard thing to maintain, but it's, it's key. It's critical, especially in those situations. It's even harder when you have a lot of things going on around you and a long mental checklist of things you need to do once the show closes, you know, to get back to the hotel, to check out, to all that stuff. Uh, you can have a great exhibit. You can be promoting cool new products. You can have enthusiastic people around you. Uh, but if you uh, maintain your presence of mind, if you can keep from being distracted, if you can focus on your objectives with each and every interaction that you have in the booth, it'll go a long way to giving you more success, I believe, in your trade show marketing. All right. So that's kind of the trade show tip of the week, uh, presence of mind when you're in the booth. It's tough. It really is tough. This week's one good thing. We usually have one good thing, but you know, I've been off the air as it were for uh, several weeks. I don't think the last one I did was in mid-December. So I've got a bunch of things to share, actually. Uh, the movie Dolomite, Eddie Murphy, it's out on uh, Netflix. Oh my God, it is so profane. It is unbelievably profane, but it's hilarious. It's, it's, it's like the laugh out loud movie that I have been waiting for. Um, and I love Eddie Murphy. Uh, we watched it on New Year's Eve and then went to watch uh, the previous uh, Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, where Eddie Murphy was the host. And that was fun, too. So I would highly recommend Dolomite. The book that I talked about... Uh, Lisa Cron is called Story Genius, How to Use Brain Science to Go Beyond Outlining and Writing a Riveting Novel. If you're a writing and you're interested in writing a novel, this is really where the gold is. It's, I'm, I'm doing all the exercises. I wrote my first draft and I found this book and I'm using it to go back. I'm, I'm, it's just, it's such a help. I've just never, never found anything quite like this. And, you know, here we are in 2020 and the news, you, I mean, if you watch the news, it can be really kind of scary and negative and, and whatnot, but there are a lot of good things. And I'm going to share two things with you in the show notes that show you how the world really is doing well and it's getting better in so many ways. Uh, first of all, uh, I think they actually cross a few things, uh, cross a few, like the Venn diagram. 
Uh, astronaut Chris Hadfield, he has published about a three or four minute video on YouTube, An Astronaut's Guide to Optimism. So I'll include that in the show. And Nicholas Kristof, an Oregonian who's been a New York Times columnist for years, decades, I think. He has written uh, 2019, the best year ever. So uh, he looks at all the positive things going on, too. And believe me, in this day and age, and uh, especially Nicholas admits it, it's hard to get past the news sometimes, but it's good to know that there are a lot of good things happening worldwide that we just don't hear about. And so I'll share those two in the show notes down below, and I think I'll just embed the video from uh, Chris Hadfield. That does it for this week's Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee, starting year four of the podcast slash video blog Uh I appreciate you spending any time you can with me and uh, love having you here. So thanks. Hope you have a great year and uh, best wishes to you. See you next week.